Happy New Year and a warm welcome to the first Convex Conversation of 2024 with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Paris 2024 is on the horizon and promises to be the first Olympics in history to achieve gender parity, with the same number of male and female athletes competing in the same number of events in the largest sporting event in the world. But it's taken 128 years to get here and the founder of the modern Olympics may be turning in his grave. Sue Ansis has been involved in women's sport for more than three decades, dedicating much of her working life to fighting for equality. She directed and presented the Netflix documentary Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport, based on a book she wrote. Sue is the founder and CEO of Fearless Women, an agency whose sole aim is to drive change in women's sport. She hosts her own podcast, The Game Changers, featuring incredible trailblazers, and was an awarded an MBE for her services to women's sport. So, uh, Happy New Year, Sue. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, happy New Year to you. Uh, how exciting is this year going to be for women's sport, do you think? Yeah, it's so exciting. It feels like it's never-ending almost, the growth and improvements that we're seeing. But yeah, 2024, definitely with the Olympic Games and Six Nations, many other sporting events too taking place. I really hope that we can build on the growth we've seen for the last few years. Do you feel that the appetite for women's sport has perhaps never been greater than it is right now? Yeah, I really do. I do worry sometimes about that whole, have we reached a tipping point, that phrase of it's often we move forward and then we fall back a little bit in other areas too. I think lots of growth sees that pattern, but it definitely feels we've gone past a certain point in terms of funding, visibility, the investment in women's sport. It does really feel even the last three, five years or so, we've seen a, a big, big shift. What are the biggest changes do you think you've seen in the last five years or so? I think a lot at the top end, the professional end, I think, is around the funding and the investment. And, you know, we're still striving for a lot of equal pay and opportunity, but lots more professionalism. So it's only in the last decade we've seen professional athletes in terms of rugby and football and cricket and netball. So women finally being paid to play, but also that investment in the sponsorships. There's some big brands coming to sponsor women's sport. And then the coverage, clearly the TV coverage is so important. So that free-to-air coverage, and not just the volume of coverage, but the quality of coverage. So the number of cameras we've got at events, the quality of the pundits, the analysis that goes around it, really a quality product. And that changes people's perception of a sport, of how it's depicted. And what has your work involved, Sue? Because I said there in the intro that you've dedicated much of your career to all of this, but how have you managed to bring about change? I would imagine it's a bit like trying to turn the Queen Mary in many ways. Yeah, it does feel like we are kind of movement forward now for me I love sport I love women's sport but it's not really just about that for me it's the bigger piece around what sport and equality in sport can do within society more broadly so when young girls see the amazing lionesses win and their success and actually more of when I was at the Euros year before last but seeing young boys with mead on the back of their shirt as they're walking back home so what it does for young boys and men to see successful women in sport that's been such a male domain for so so long so for me that's the really important part that's it's exciting to see and what about the events that are upcoming this year? Things like the Olympics, what are you looking forward to most? Yeah, I do love the Olympics. And the Olympics, I guess, have, although you mentioned in the intro there, you know, at last we're seeing that gender equality. But for many Olympic sports, there's never been the big issue that we have seen in other traditionally male sports. So if you think about athletics or swimming, we're just going to watch the men's side of it. We're not going to watch the female athletes too. So for many Olympic sports, we have had that parity, triathlon, other sports like that. But yeah, really excited to see that on the stage Olympics and, and obviously the Paralympics too and the 
the growth that we've seen in, in that area since 2012 that continues on. So yeah, really exciting to see so many sports. It's hard to pick sports from the Olympic Games. I think just that wonderful festival of celebration across that period and so close to us in Paris this year. What about football and rugby? Have we got some big ones coming up this yeah. year too? I know we've got the Rugby World Cup is 2025, isn't it? Yeah, the Six Nations, um, kind of growing and growing on the Six Nations. So a new title sponsor for the Six Nations in Guinness this year for the women's Six Nations. And a couple of years ago, it moved to a, a separate window. So it's no longer runs alongside the men. So for many years, it ran at exactly the same time as the men's Six Nations. Post-COVID, they were separated and that had huge success. So the seeing of us sort of uncoupling the women's sport from the men's has had great success. And I was lucky enough to be at Twickenham for the Six Nations game against France. We had nearly 60,000 people in the crowd at Twickenham. It's like amazing. When you think even a few years ago to have had five, 6,000 coming to a women's rugby game would have been applauded. So there has been this big shift and getting into those big stadia and having a dedicated time to celebrate it I think that's the shift that we're going to see as you say as we move into 2025 and the, the uh, World Cup being at home Do you think that Twickenham will be absolutely packed to the rafters for that? Yeah absolutely and, and they announced very recently that where all the venues will be so it's around the country eight different venues which is really exciting it's not just one or two stadia so it starts off at, up in Sunderland Stadium of Light so it's amazing that it's going to be across the country in Sale uh, right down to Exeter and, and Brighton, like all over the country. So Sandy Park down on the south coast too. So how fantastic that we're going to see it everywhere and, and yeah, hopefully some really full stadia. You're passionate, I know, about rugby. What is it about rugby that, you know, really excites you as a spectator? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when I was at university, I never played rugby. I think actually if we look at some of our own unconscious biases at that whole issue around females playing sport, I love sport. I was a volleyball player. I swam and I ran. But I was always a little bit uncomfortable with the sight of women pushing each other to the ground. The tackling made me feel uncomfortable when I was growing up. So it's kind of slightly ironic that now... I've got daughters that play rugby. I'm a massive, passionate fan of rugby. But I think of all the sports for me, women's sport, it's probably the one that most challenges what society sees as conventionally feminine and typically this is what women should do. And I think I love that about it. And the fact that it's so inclusive, that it's women from of all body shapes, all backgrounds, all physicalities that can excel in the sport of rugby too. I've never actually been to a rugby game full stop, so that's bad. So I think We're when the change women's... We'll get you along we'll to a game. We'll change that. Can I come to a game <laughs> yeah, with you and, and watch? some. Nelson Mandela said that sport has the power to change the world and it hasn't been easy at all for women over the decades. What are those main challenges and prejudices do you think that women have felt and is it around femininity and fragility? Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And I think we look historically at the sort of female frailty myth that if we played sport and we were active, our uteruses might fall out or we become infertile or this kind of pseudoscience that was very much around. Um, was it really? Yeah, absolutely. That was the reason that women weren't allowed to play was the worry that we would not be able to have children in the future because it would affect our bodies. So we would become weak and depleted from playing like a finite amount of energy and if we expended it on sports. It's okay for us to work in the fields and the factories, but not okay to play sports. So that was definitely one of the myths that grew up around women not playing. And in a way that has, con although that's, we laugh at that now and that seems quite ridiculous. It's only, I think it was the early 2000s that the president of the Ice Jumping Association said women couldn't take part in Olympic ice jumping because the worry about them constantly landing on the ground would damage their internal organs. So there is still this idea that women will be damaged, their physicality will be damaged through taking part in sport. So it does persist. And I guess the way in which 
we want to see our athletes and those that are best rewarded in terms of contracts often and sponsorship are the ones that most have typical feminine traits of being tall. If you think about tennis players that are tall and willowy and blonde and beautiful and feminine, there's a dilemma for athletes in terms of needing to be that. But actually, we never think about that with men. They can just be the best athlete they can be. So there is a bit of a paradox for many female athletes there. And we're even seeing change, or we have done over the last year or so, at Wimbledon in terms of women and what outfits they're expected to play in. Absolutely. And I think the subject of periods is something that as a society, sometimes we find uncomfortable to talk about, but we shouldn't do because it's something that happens to half the population and it's something very natural. But yes, the kind of whole idea of playing in whites. And we've seen a big shift there with Wimbledon, but many rugby clubs and football clubs changing so the women don't need to play in white shorts and ultimately it's not even just about those elite level women at the very top of the game it's about what encourages girls and women to play at a younger age too so we see this huge dropout of teenage girls from sport so even though we're having the success at the elite level there is still twice as many teenage girls dropping out of sport as boys and a lot of that is around the clothing that we force them to wear in skirts, little short skirts, cropped knickers or whatever for gymnastics and leotards. And so it can be very uncomfortable for young women at that age. I'm all for campaigning to give them more choice, more options for the clothes that they would want to wear. I think it was your daughter, actually, or one of your daughters on the Netflix documentary who you were chatting to in the car about outfits for things like netball. And she raised the point that it's really not that practical to be playing in a tiny skirt with underwear on display. It, it just seems so archaic to me that the choice hasn't been there until very recently. Yeah, and this is interesting, isn't it? You talk to elite netballers, or I talk to some of the you know, sort of just directors of sport who will say, actually, for many netballers, they love the dress. It's very special to have a dress. It's you know been a traditional thing, which I do agree with. For those girls that love netball and are playing netball and are comfortable in that, that is a lovely thing. But I'm more concerned about the sort of 90% of girls that are stopped playing because they don't want to play in those clothes and many other reasons to stop playing sport. But if clothing's a key one, which it seems to be from research, it, it doesn't seem that complicated to be able to offer more choice to enable girls to continue to play. Then, of course, there's always the unhelpful comments from people like Joey Barton talking about female football commentators and likening them to him talking about knitting or netball. I mean, it beggars belief really to me that in 2023 those comments are still being made and it certainly doesn't help does it? No it doesn't and I think football of all the sports is the worst for that in terms of that vitriol that we see towards female athletes but also to pundits and broadcasters and so on. Sometimes I almost distance myself from it. I feel there's almost a continuum of, of men and male allies. There's those that are completely on board and see the value of equality. Those that aren't too sure and then those are those like Joey Barton who are at one end of doing it to make noise and create sound bites and I almost try not to bother with those. I think it's the ones in the middle that we can kind of shift to move along to see what an amazing you know activity it is to have women competing at sport, but also fantastic pundits. There was someone I heard speaking in response to him that said, actually, I've been commentating on football and watching games for longer than Joey Burton's been alive. You know, she's been doing it for 40 years. So there's no reason that women can't have expertise to comment on something just because they haven't played men's sport to a professional level. I think your sort of tactic of really sort of ignoring things like that is probably the best bet, really. Is <laughs> it's a bit like getting ridiculous things on Twitter or X, isn't it? And yeah. just, just actually not responding to those. The Lionesses, of course, have done wonders for women's football. I was reading that 12 million watched their World Cup final with Spain last year, and that's only second in viewing figures to the King's coronation. 
How have the lionesses, do you think, helped shift perception? Hugely, hugely so. And I was a trustee for the Women's Sport Trust charity for a, a decade or so. And a lot of their work is around role models, the importance of role models. And I think we've always talked about it, but it's only really with the lionesses through the Euros and the World Cup that we've truly seen the impact of those kind of women being celebrated and becoming household names, hugely popular. And I was at a game down at Bristol, Bristol City play in the Women's Super League too. And they were saying when they have teams that have lionesses in that come to play at their ground, they usually have 4,000 people in their stadia. When Man City or Arsenal come and they bring some of those lionesses, they've got 14,000, 15,000 people coming in to see the lionesses. So for me, it's the power that they have to attract those women and girls, you know, younger girls and boys to come and watch the sport. And then might they play the sport and then eventually potentially work in the sport too. So the shift they're having at all levels, I think, is really impactful. It's great. Of course, women's football, I was interested to learn that began in the 1800s and was particularly big in the 1920s. Tell me a bit about the history, Sue, because I found all that fascinating in your documentary. Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? You almost assume that people know about it now because it's been more talked about. And yet I talked to so many people that kind of don't realise that stop-start history, as it were, of women's football. So yeah, hugely popular. When the men went off to war, the women were in the munitions factories, so taking the roles of men and through that, playing sports. So football had been very big within the factories to unite teams of men working. The women took on that kind of gamut too and played and hugely, hugely popular. So hundreds of teams across the country. Dick Kerr ladies is the one that's very well known that had huge, huge crowds. And 53,000 people came to watch them play on Boxing Day. I think it was like 14,000 waiting outside, couldn't get in. But sadly, a little bit later than that, in 1921, the FA decided, in all its wisdom, to ban women from playing on any FA pitches. And also from having officials and coaches or anybody that was aligned to women's sport would lose their licence to work in men's sport. So virtually overnight women's football was stopped and, and people did still play at, you know in parks and elsewhere but they weren't allowed to compete in the way that they had been too so and again it was because it was unsuitable for women was one of the reasons so going back to that idea of not physically good for women you know worried that they might damage themselves so yeah so it's shocking to think it was that ban happened and then it went across the world to germany and south america around the world and then was in place for 50 years so it wasn't until 1970 that was finally lifted and so that's why we're seeing this growth now but we've been kind of held back and not had those opportunities for so long in women's football. And how did it come back in the 1970s? What was the tipping point that made the FA back down on their 50-year yeah, ban? Yeah, the interesting is I think it was, it was a FIFA piece. I think in many of these things, it's when people finally see the opportunity of we're missing half the population taking part in our sport. There's money to be made there. And I think we've seen a lot of that with women's sport. I think the growth, and it wasn't just in football. If you look at the history of women's rugby union, women's cricket, women playing cricket in the 80s, but the whole being stopped of and prevented from playing happened in many of those what are now seen as traditionally male team sports. But I think that whole seeing an opportunity to maximise the opportunity around it commercially, I think, is one of the things that has seen that investment and growth. And we're seeing that definitely with football now. Suddenly, I'm at many conferences where people are talking about the growth, the real growth opportunity in those team sports now is the women's game. I think broadcaster Claire Balding said not so long ago that 
corporates are now seeing the real value in sponsoring women's games and also in terms of having that more connection with the players and real engagement. Absolutely. And um, lots of research now showing that women's sport is seen as more progressive, more inclusive, more family friendly, it's cleaner. So sponsors that want that association and love what sport is because it is the thing that unifies us that we get passionate about and uh, you know, within communities and, and nations too. So I think sports wanting an element of that, but seeing that women's sport brings something very different, as you say, a very different audience, a different feel. If you've been to a women's football match, you know, it's completely different crowd, atmospheres, no segregation of fans. It's just like a lovely celebratory place to be. And in men's football, did the Industrial Revolution play a big part in the growth there? Because I'm guessing factories wanted their men fit and to get them out and exercise and keep them well to do the shift work. Is that where we saw the growth with the men? Yeah, there has been lots. Of, if you look at the history of, of men's sport generally, a lot of it associated around the health and wellness, but also that Christian masculinity, so they're being virile and strong. And those are the elements. And if you look at what happened in public schools, it was let's make our boys tough and strong through sport. And that almost didn't play into the hands of the women then because actually it was like we're tough and strong and powerful and fit and now oh, we need to look after our women because they're in the home caring, nurturing, doing all those things that, you know, almost like to this day of the get back in the kitchen is the piece that you'll most see on Twitter or X for female footballers and pundits. So that whole keeping women where they belong while the men are strong and fit and healthy. So I think that's part of the underlying perhaps negativity that some men in society feel towards women playing sport is it incurs on their space of sport is all about being strong and fit and healthy and virile and all those associations. We need to be strong, fit and healthy, don't we, Sue, <laughs> to live well into our, to age well and live well. And of course, sport is so important for our mental health. So it made, made me feel a little bit sad that you say a lot of teenagers are perhaps turning away from it at some points, but it's important for all of those reasons too, isn't it? We're not just talking about elite athletes here. We're talking about all of us and getting out and being active and enjoying the benefits of playing as a team and all that that brings. Hugely, hugely so. And that's the thing I think that saddens me when we see girls dropping out, teenage girls, young girls stopping playing sport, that we then almost lose them for the rest of their life. And all the benefits of using the physical bone strength, mobility, cardiovascular health, but also the friendship, you know, overcoming loneliness, stress and anxiety, being better leaders, all the things that men have known for hundreds of years that come from playing sport, but individual or team sport, that those girls miss out on. And there's some fantastic research from the US that says, I think it's 96% of women in those C-suite roles of CEOs, CMOs, have played sport to a high level. So the fact that being a sports person, being in a team, training, discipline, knowing how to lose gracefully, kind of how that plays into the business side too. So hopefully, as we see more women and girls coming in and playing sport and staying in sport, that might then relate more to wider industry and opportunities in, in business too. The founder of the modern Olympic Games wasn't a great advocate. Uh, I love the quote that you used on Netflix. An Olympiad with females will be impractical, uninteresting, inesthetic and incorrect, said Pierre de Coubertin in 1896. He really would be turning in his grave, wouldn't he, if he saw the 2024 Paris lineup? Absolutely. And you look at that, so that whole how far back that was sort of nothing at all. The opening Olympics had no women's sport. But when I look back at the history, it's only like in the 85, I think, that the endurance races, the cycling were allowed to take part. And then, you know, some of the team sports, the football came in 96. So it isn't, it's gradually year by year, they 
they've allowed us to come and play other sports too. So yeah, and even with the women's football, you know, sadly, Great Britain Team GB won't be playing in the Olympic Games. But for the men in the Olympic Games, there are 16 teams that qualify. It's only 12 for the women's. Why is that? Well, it's just a thing that's always been. So even though we're getting parity in some places, in some sports, there's still more opportunity for men than there is for women. So Sue, what was it that inspired you to sit down at your desk and write Game On? I think having spoken to so many amazing trailblazers in sport, I wanted to more amplify their stories. And I think for me personally, it was a bit of a research process of finding out more about the history, about why we are where we are. I can see the here and now, but I wanted to understand why we'd got to the place we are, because I think that's a bit that can influence what happens moving forwards too. And what were the biggest surprises to you and what did you uncover or reveal that you found most interesting through that process? I think a lot of the fact that this was all happening in the 1800s. So that's almost the most shocking part, that it isn't as if women haven't been doing those things. I think it is that realisation that this was part of society and then for whatever reason it was stopped. And, And also how those that we kind of laugh about the you know, medical diagnosis of weak-willed women and, you know, needing to feminise sport, put women in dresses and skirts to make it feminine. But that still exists today. So that's the piece that is interesting, but it's almost quite shocking. I think when you then look at those pictures of the beach handball team last year in their tiny bikinis next to the men in their shorts and think, it's 2023, 24. How can this still be that we've got this disparity in sport? But understanding where it comes from and and how we've got to where we are today hopefully will help us shift things in the future. And was it then a natural progression to make the Netflix documentary following the book? Yeah, I was encouraged by a team. I'd worked with a a couple of other pieces of content with them, historically, Jack and Ben's studio. And it was them that encouraged me to take the book and make it into the documentary because actually it's such a, it's 86,000 words. How do you take all that content and condense that down into an hour, a compelling hour to tell some of those stories. So yeah, I think it took a while to persuade me that it would be a thing I'd be able to do. But yeah, it's been an amazing, I absolutely love the process of making it. And we've just finished another one now with a, a rugby player who had a baby in July, came up to play rugby again 17 weeks later. So we kind of followed her story, Abby Ward. So that hopefully will be out in later Yes, on. that's Abby Ward from, have I got this right, the Bristol Bears? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so tell me a bit about Abby and then I'll go back to the documentary. Uh, yeah, so Abby had a baby in July and, and was really kind of keen to come back and play professional rugby again in November where she came out in the Premiership Women's Rugby and she has done it. So it's been an amazing following her story with her husband who is also the head coach of Bristol Bears. So there's an interesting dynamic there too. And just seeing the support she'd had and what a woman's body can do. And it, I think it, we don't want the documentary to say every woman that has a baby should be coming back to that level, but actually with the correct support around you in terms of the physiology and the, the coaches and so on, what a woman's body is capable of doing, can do. So just to overturn some of those myths. I think as society, we kind of say to women, you know, sit down on the train, don't carry any bags when you're pregnant. We really overemphasize not moving. And similarly, when women have had babies, often we don't encourage them to come and play sport and get involved in physical activity. But it can be both fantastic for women to be active through pregnancy and post-pregnancy too. And we lose women again at that key part of having children. Often we lose them to sport. Yeah, so there's a bigger societal message again there too. And when will we see that and where will we be able to watch that? Well, who, who knows? By the time the, you know, we're, we're out about, hopefully we'll find a home for it. We've done exactly the same as we did with Game On. We've made it, we've self-funded it and created it. And then we will take it around to find a home for it later this year. Fantastic. Now, in the Netflix documentary, you featured, well, some of my favourite names in sport and people that I really admire, the former Paralympian Tanny Gray Thompson, who just seems a complete force of nature, national treasure in terms of broadcasting, Claire Balding, Denise Lewis, the former heptathlon, 
Olympic star and the former international footballer and boxer Stacy Copeland. Are these all great friends to who you've known over the years who you felt had very strong contributions? If yeah, like to make? So lots of them I'm very fortunate to interview most of them actually for the game changes over the years I and mean, I've worked with them within sport and all of them when asked would they come and take part immediately said yes there was no negotiating with agents or trying to get them on board lots of them invited us into their homes into their workspaces fantastic people at England Rugby and England Netball let us film at their events and so on so people were very generous in the making of the documentary and I think that it kind of comes through when you see the authenticity of the stories that people were able to share and the passion that they have for this area. Tell me a little bit about Stace's boxing story because that one I was absolutely gripped by and Stacey, you threaded her through the story really. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary really and she's almost one of those athletes that's been ahead of her time. You think if she was coming through now either as a professional boxer or as a footballer, you know, she represented her country at two sports things would be very different. But she's so sort of humble about the fact that she's paved the way for other athletes that are coming through today. So she was a footballer, played for England as a footballer and then boxed, but sadly didn't get to compete at the Olympic Games because similarly to the whole less teams for the men than the women, there are less categories for boxers in the weight categories at the Olympic Games than there are for women. So fewer women get to box at the Games too. But she had huge Commonwealth success. She was Commonwealth champion gone on yet to be very vocal around the disparities that we see for women across sport but especially sports like football and and I think in terms of boxing she perhaps felt it more than most because of her rich family history I mean her dad and granddad were boxers weren't they yeah her granddad ran the club that she trained at as a young child too yeah so for the longest time growing up she just trained with the boys Uh, she felt that would be her pathway. And it was only when she reached a certain age of sparring, she was told, that's it, no, you can't compete. There's no opportunity for you anymore, which, you know, must have been so devastating for a young girl that had followed that path of her family and had great success at it too. Yeah, and also she said that she'd never really considered being a girl when she was a kid. She just boxed because that's what she did. I thought her story was really compelling. But where does your passion for all this come from, Sue? What ignited your interest in all of this? I think I've always been a sporty girl. I went to Loughborough, I studied sport and English and I was kind of played lots of, I was a bit of a jack of all trades, played lots of sport and having worked in communications within the kind of fitness and sports sector. But I think for me, it's probably the last 15, 20 years of that whole seeing the impact it can have across society. And that's a bit for me is when women and girls see and celebrate those amazing athletes, what does it tell them about what else they can do in their lives? And that doesn't have to be in sport but recognising and seeing women you know sport's such a part of society back of every newspaper every news bulletin we talk about sport it's like it's really unique but someone said it's almost one of the most important non-important things in our lives Um, (laughs) it is something that's so you know indoctrinated within society and to not see women in those newspaper reports or being you know in television coverage etc how does that make women and girls they don't almost realize it but they're excluded from it so i think when they see and we celebrate the amazing mary Earps or whoever your, your lionesses are that we love how does it make them feel about what else they could do and that could be being engineers or be, you know working any field uh, but what does it in- enable women to feel they can achieve gender inequality is naturally a global problem how can sport 
help drive change for the better, do you think, within society? I think it reflects and, and magnifies what we see in society. So often things we see, the disparities and the inequalities we see in sport are what is in society anyway. But I think because sport is this unique thing, I think it has a chance to show and shine a light on what could be different. If you think about what happened after the World Cup last year with the coach eventually being sacked and the president and the fact that people came together to talk about, say this is unacceptable, but do they then have conversations about what's acceptable in in their workplaces, having seen it so high profile, or the equal pay, the US team fighting for equal pay because they have more success than the men's team. Does that then enable women to go into their workplaces and have a conversation about equal pay because of what they've seen reflected in sport? Where are we with equal pay? I mean, I know the US soccer team really led the way, didn't they, in that? But where are we now in terms of pay for professional sports, men and women, and also prize money? Women's still far behind. The things are getting better. I think sometimes feel we're a little bit gaslit in that area where we hear for the 100, for instance, in cricket, well, it's fantastic. We've got equal prize money. But when you dig a little bit deeper, actually, the pay disparity is still huge for the professional cricket players that are taking part. And sometimes you know, they'll announce the match fees are equal. That's fantastic. But actually, the contracts for the women are so much smaller than the contracts for the men. So I feel there is progress being made. And we it's a difficult thing. We need to celebrate that progress. We want to be grateful it's hard because you feel we should be grateful for it but actually it's something that's due that's not been paid over time historically and the reason women haven't had that success and those crowds and numbers etc is because it hasn't had the investment in the past so in a way there should be equity there should be more money being paid and, and invested in women's sport to redress the balance that's been so unfair for the last 150 years you could say so as we start the new year there's still plenty to do isn't there it sounds like there's been plenty of progress made but still an awful long way to go. I don't think you're going to be out of out of work for a long time, Sue. <laughs> but it's exciting. It's exciting to see. And I think there's definitely a domino effect of where we see this success and impact in one sport and how that then ripples onto other sports and also across countries. So seeing the success in New Zealand, Australia for the World Cup last year and how that might impact what other nations are doing too. So that's exciting. And that's something I think that's quite unique to women's sport, that collaboration and the seeing and celebrating of other sports and athletes because it's good for everybody when things move forward and progress. You have worked and know some incredible women in the industry. Who are your favourites and, and why, Sue? Who who do you really admire and it's look to? It's a tricky question to ask me my favourite children, isn't it? It's yes, hard. Favorite children. Children. Yeah. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. We'll do that off air afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, it's, I think on terms of um, the people that I interview, both on the documentaries and on the, on the um, podcast too, sometimes they're really high. I'm in awe of some of those, you know, the Denise Lewis's and Jess Ennis Hills and the amazing uh, Sarah Hunter, the amazing athletes. But often it's the women who I didn't know before I spoke to them so the women who are behind the scenes who have driven change who are working as activists or often those stories are the ones that most resonate with me because those are not that they're not trailblazers but they're the real trailblazers often behind the scenes so to amplify their stories and tell their stories and, and all that they're doing you know that often excites me I think as, as much as I love to meet my sporting heroes too. <laughs> 
And tell me about Fearless Women. You founded Fearless Women a few years ago. Yes, I did, just during COVID, actually. So I ran a, an agency, a sports marketing agency, PR agency, for 26 years. And that closed during COVID. And we established Fearless Women. So it's a consultancy that's really driving change across women's sport. And the main parts are, I mentioned the game changers, but we have the Women's Sport Collective. That's a network for women working across sport, a free network. So we've got 6,500 members now from 89 countries, just enabling them to flourish and connect and to learn from each other, to be inspired by each other. So yeah, it's grown really kind of hugely in the last three years or so. We talked a lot about athletes and, and people at the, the top of their game, no pun intended, in terms of sport. But where are we in terms of refereeing and, and managing? Are females refereeing big male tournaments? Where are we on that front? Yeah, I'd say no. They're just beginning to. So we're beginning to see it and we celebrate it when we do see it. But absolutely, female officials in both men's and women's sports are the top end of women's rugby now. We don't see many women there because they haven't come through, there's many reasons, they haven't come through that kind of pathway. It hasn't been available to them. But also coaches is a huge, huge issue. So although we're seeing parity in Paris of equal male and female competitors, less than 10% of coaches for the Olympics and Paralympic Games over the last 20 years have been women. So women aren't in those elite coaching roles. So that's a huge area that needs shifting is how do we enable more women to come through and coach both at grassroots, but also right up through the performance pathway. Many girls will say that inspires them to take part and to compete when they have female coaches available too. So that's a huge area. And I guess the big piece for me is around leadership is how do we get more women not just as board directors, but around the top table, making decisions in sport in those big organisations like FIFA, UEFA, the ICC, those women involved, because that then filters down to the decisions made around access and pitches and funding when you've got, and not just women, but a more diverse range of individuals around those board tables and senior management. So that's part of the collective is how do we kind of help get more women in those places. And how do you do that? I know that's probably the $6 million question, but how do you do that? I think a lot of time has been spent on trying to fix the women. So we need to make them more confident and overcome imposter syndrome. But actually a lot of it is around this, the ecosystem itself, the process of appointment, people appointing people that are like them, that have had that experience, that they know. A lot needs to be done in terms of the governance of how those bodies are run, how long people stay in post for. You know, senior organisations that have boards that have been in post for years and years and years and then appoint people in their own likeness. The shifting of that, so governance, in many cases it is around not just having one. I think sometimes it's almost like we get one woman on a board or one woman in a team. Actually, it's about having room for more than one woman, one individual to come and, and be involved too. So there's not really one answer. There's many different and a bit of it. Our role, I think, is giving women the confidence to know they can go for those roles. They can be connected. They can find out about them. They can feel there's a place for them because the women we work with are so extraordinarily capable and confident. And actually, in many cases, even more magnificent than many of the men around them because they've had to work so hard to be in the place that they are too. So hopefully with us doing our work and changes happening elsewhere because people are being called out for it in a way they haven't been in the past then hopefully we'll see those shifts and changes coming. Do you still get time, Sue, to get out and enjoy your netball and, and your <laughs> activities that I, you enjoy? I do indeed, yes. Changed a bit for me. So I was a very competitive as a young athlete and I did a bit of triathlon in my 40s, which I loved. But now it's very much more around just enjoying sport, very much for friendship and being with other people. So I love my walking netball on a Thursday and cold water swimming as well with a group at the lake at the weekend. So that's kind of the, I've made a different pathway of sport and that yoga I love too. So yeah, perhaps not as competitive and intense as it has been in the past, but there's still something that's so important that brings me great joy and, you know, that community feel and just, yeah, 
being out and about and moving. Your daughters love sport too, don't they? Which is perhaps has come from your love too. Yeah, I think it's definitely a reflection of that. My husband and I do often comment, we're not really into art and music and therefore we actually, one of them was a good musician, but it isn't really a path that they've followed. But yes, we all love sport and I think you probably feel that within the family. They're all tall girls too, so that's kind of encouraged them to take sport up and play sport too, I'm sure. I'm impressed you got into triathlon in your 40s. I mean, I can't even run for the bus, which is a bit <laughs> Which is a little bit embarrassing. But I did notice on the documentary you opened with your wild water swimming. What joy does that bring? That's something I've discovered in in recent times. And I don't do enough of it, but when I do, I really like it. It's just amazing, isn't it? I I often comment it's like kind of good for the soul. I do feel there are moments when you're out there in the middle of a lake, there's mist and it's cold and whatever, just to feel alive and to feel very centred. I think that's the, the piece. It kind of makes you feel in that moment. Especially when it's cold water, you can only think about how cold the water is. You haven't got you know, the opportunity to think about other things. But definitely that unifying part of doing something with other people, I think. And, and I guess it's interesting, isn't it? I was talking to someone yes, just very recently around the finding a sport. How do I find the sport for me this year in 2024? But actually, there's a sport out there for everybody. I think it is, you know, sport and activity. I've found different things at different stages of my life. So it isn't as if you've got to find a sport that you played in school and that's your sport. I think there are opportunities. One of my daughters has taken up bouldering and climbing recently, and she's absolutely loving that. So discovering new things, I think there's so much out there. In a way, coming back to the Olympic Games, sometimes seeing those range of sports that are available can open people's minds to what else they might want to do. Yeah, and of course, it's not about being amazing at it, is it? It's about doing it for pleasure often. There's only a few people that get to those elite <laughs> elite levels of sport, but why not have a go? What next for you, Sue, 2024? What does it hold for you, obviously, other than finding a home for your new Abbey documentary? Yes, I try and rein myself in, actually, my colleague and I, I've realised in the last few years, I do like to make things, so creating new content and so on. So I think to keep growing the Women's Sport Collective, it is almost like a self-fulfilling. It's it's very beautiful to see that thrive and grow. So more of that too. I would like to make more documentaries because I've just so enjoyed the process of learning. I think for me, discovering new things, maybe another book on the horizon at some point. But I think for the next year or so, just to keep going with what we're doing, to keep growing and seeing, being part of the movement to drive change. And you know that we've been asking recently every guest at the end, what's the biggest risk they've ever taken in their life? So, Sue, what's the biggest risk you think you've ever taken? I think probably uh, during COVID, closing the agency that I'd run for 26 years and taking on something new and not knowing what would happen with it, really. So having been a part of an agency for so long, going off on my own and doing my own thing. But I'm very much the belief you do what you love. And if it feels right and it's in the right space and you're doing it with the right intentions authentically, the rest will follow. I've never really chased the money and funding. It's come, but that's never really been my ambition. So I think that's a kind of good life lesson of do what you love with passion and the rest will follow. And how optimistic are you feeling about the next few years now as you navigate them in women's sport? Yeah, I feel very, very positive. I do feel I'm a bit of an ever an optimist on these things anyway, but I do feel uh, the shift has been made. It's, it's very much a part of the mainstream. A lot of that infrastructure is in place. I think there's a lot we need to do still around participation, around women and girls. There's still a huge gap there. So maybe that's the next piece we can look more to as we sort of sort out the high profile equality in terms of coverage and funding. But the participation, I think that's a, a really important part. 
Oh, your passion just simply shines through. So you can absolutely see chatting to you how much all this means to you. So thank you for guesting on my podcast as opposed to you being the host <laughs> of your podcast. Has that been a welcome change? Yeah, it's lovely. It's quite strange Is being it? on the other side, but I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Oh, thank good. You. I'm glad you have. You've been listening to Sue Anstis, MBE, talking about women's sport, gender equality, how attitudes are finally shifting and what events we have to look forward to this year. If you haven't watched Sue's Netflix documentary Game On or read her book, then I'd highly recommend them both. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another inspirational guest and filling 2024 with more great stories. 